All glory be to Christ. Happy New Year. 2017. It's, uh, I may get a little emotional. Because I look at the, the scope of just our family's life. And it, it was a year of transition for us. Um, I, I remember I was on the road on January the 3rd of 2017, and uh, it was the very first time um, that I ever heard of the church Cross Life. <clears throat> and, and here we are, almost a year later. So it's transition for our family as, as we moved into this ministry, it was a new home for us, a new school for our children, a new job for my wife. And I look at it and I think that that was our story of 2017 and each of you have stories. Some of them are great. New children, new job, new circumstances, new story, new situation. That, that was celebration in your life. For others, though, uh, 2017 was, it was marked by loss or grief or pain or sorrow. And I think those stories that they ring true throughout the, this room this morning, that there are stories of 2017 being celebration. There are stories of 2017 being those of great grief or great sorrow and, and maybe a little bit of in-between. Maybe there was, was the roller coaster ride of 2017 and, and it began at a very high level. It's somewhere in the middle, like it seemed to bottom out and now you're tra- trending back up again. But no matter what the, the, the word is that you wanna place on your story of 2017, even for our family as I look at it, the reality the reality of it is this, is that as followers of Jesus and as the church of Jesus Christ, that the banner, that the word that exists over our story, not just for 2017, but 2018 and 2019 and 2020, that the banner and the word over our story is the name of Jesus Christ. That Jesus Christ is our story in the good times and in the bad. So if you sit here today and you say on December 31st, 2017, that you've experienced great sorrow, great pain, great grief, great great confusion or depression, I'm here to tell you today that standing over that, standing over what you may be feeling and what you may be placing over your 2017 is the name of Jesus Christ. And that is providing hope in 2017 for you and for me as we move into 2018, all for the glory of Jesus Christ. And so this morning, I just wanted to come around Isaiah 43. And just full disclosure, this was the the chapter that that God placed in my heart, January 3rd, 2017. And so I've said it, I've never preached out of this passage before. This is is just kind of where God has led me this morning and really the trajectory of my year personally and our year as a family. But it got me thinking about new things because we're in the midst of Christmas and, and, and everybody in here, for the most part, you probably got something new this past Christmas. Maybe you got a new car. If you got a new car and you don't want it, you can give it to me. <laughs> Maybe you got a new phone. Those of you that have children, you got them new toys. And the thing is this, that we all want new things. We all enjoy having new things. Those of you that got a new car over the last year, there's nothing better than to get into that new car full of gas, 
with maybe, you know, 50 miles on it and you sit down in that new car and there is that new car smell. You love it. Do you know that you can have an old car and you can go to a car wash and they'll give you a scent now for your car that's a new car smell? I'm driving my grandmother's old Buick and so I'm thinking about getting that. Just people like, man, it smells like a new car. I'm like, it's not. And, and, and there's nothing better than that. But the truth of it is this, and, and, and our bank accounts tell this out, and, and as we look back over Christmas and the things that we bought our children or, or that we bought other people or that people bought for us, is that we all want something brand new, but to receive something that is brand new, there's a cost involved in that. It may not be directly involved for you, but somebody paid a cost for something new that you've received in your life. Maybe you paid for it yourself or somebody gave it to you as a gift, but it cost them something. There's cost involved for things that are new. And this morning, I contend to us that there is a new life, a new future, a new way for each of us in this room this morning, and that cost has been paid full. And so in the book of Isaiah, the prophet is writing to us. And the central theme is this in the book of Isaiah. It is God himself. God himself who does all things for his sake. Isaiah 48, 11, It says, for my own sake, for my own sake I do this. How can I let myself be defamed? I will not yield my glory to another. And so throughout his writing, what Isaiah is doing for us is defining everything everything else by its relation to God and whether it is rightly adjusted to him as the gloriously central figure in all of reality. People ask me all the time, like, how do you start off the new year in the right way, Tim? How, how can you really begin you know, January 1st of 2018 the right way? And the answer is this, is that are you taking everything in your life Everything, your job, your family, your, your hopes, your dreams, and are you defining them by its relation to God and whether he is sitting in the rightly adjusted place as the glorious central figure in every aspect of who you are? See, it's like this, just to kind of give you a visual image of this. I am the type of person, and maybe you're this type of person, like when I sit down to eat, I do not like for my food to touch other other food on my plate. How many of you are like that? We'll admit that in the room this morning. A few of you. Everybody else thinks I'm weird. So here's the thing for me. Because that's how I am, and you can say I'm weird, I'm, I'm weird. Because of how I am like that, the single greatest invention of all time are the, the paper plates that have the compartments in them so that your food doesn't touch. Now, it's, you know, like at my grandmother's house, when we used to go for Thanksgiving, I would always hit the jackpot because for most of you, and you've seen them, they're just like three compartments. But my grandmother had these rectangle ones that had like eight compartments. <laughs> so you could get more food and it didn't touch. But you know, and, and, and that's just kind of a crazy, ridiculous story, an example, but how many of us, this is how we live our lives in Christ. And what we seek to do is that we seek to take a compartmentalized plate and say, in this section, I'm going to put my job. But it's not going to touch the things of God. I'm going to put my family in this little compartment. And I'm going to put, you know, kind of this dream that I have over in this compartment. 
And we keep segmenting it off. And then we have over in this little compartment, here is my Sunday or my Wednesday or my small group or or my worship, whatever. And it just kind of sits here, but it doesn't touch everything else. Church, what scripture tells us, what God is calling us to do here today is to take out the compartmentalization of our lives and to put everything on one plate and have everything come into the center and to touch what is right in the very middle, which is God himself in all of his glory. For us to not compartmentalize Jesus in our lives, but to take Jesus and have it be every part of our lives, our jobs, our families, every aspect of our lives for the glory of God. And so Isaiah is laying this out. Isaiah is such a book of hope. Yes, as we see through here, God must purify through judgment. But his purposes in that is one of overruling grace. We see this first in Isaiah and into Judah and to Israel and ultimately for all the nations. That purpose then is manifested through a declaration of good news throughout Isaiah that what God will do is glorify himself through the renewal of his people and thus in doing that attract all people and all nations unto him. So Isaiah is really doing for us is bringing forth a vision of hope for sinners that through the coming of Christ and through the promising for those that are ransomed by God, that there is a new world, there is a new way, that there is a new life that is available for each and every one of them. Isaiah is mentioned by name over 20 times in the New Testament where he's quoted extensively. And the reason is because the message that Isaiah preached is the very gospel of Jesus and the gospel of the apostles. So that leads us now to Isaiah 43, where I think we find some of the sweetest and richest verses in this book that speak to the suffering children of God in every generation. And the message that Isaiah is speaking is one of God's loving redemption. So look, we're gonna eventually get down to verse 16 through 21, but look at verse one, just where we start. It says, but now this is what the Lord says. He who created you, Jacob, who formed you, Israel, do not fear for I have redeemed you. I have summoned you by name. You are mine. So here's the reality as Isaiah starts off here in this verse, the knowledge of what the people deserve There is a knowledge of that, an understanding and a knowledge of what they deserve. That says that the people here should fear. I I think more so than anything throughout 2017, one of the things that I've found in dealing with college students and young adults and and just people in general is that fear seems to be a a prevalent word that's been used throughout this following year. There's fear of unknown, there's fear uh, 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 of turmoil and strife without the world. There's just a lot of fear that exists and it seems to be kind of a word that people lean on. Well, there's a knowledge here for these people of a fear of what they deserve that says that they should be afraid. However, that knowledge is supplanted by hearing the Redeemer's choice and the Redeemer's promise, meaning that they should not fear. So what I would say to you today is that if there's fear in your life, what scripture is telling us is that there has been a redeemer's choice if you're a children, if you're a child of God, if you're a son or daughter of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, that there has been a redeemer's choice and a redeemer's promise, meaning that no matter what the world throws at you, that you do not have to be afraid in Jesus Christ. See, redemption is a key accomplishment of Christ. It means to buy back. And what this verse offers to us is the reality that we are created and formed by God's activity, through God's miraculous work, and that he, through Jesus, is the one who buys us back. 
So the question then becomes, what are God's people being brought, bought back from? Well, as people who have willingly sold ourselves into slavery, the cost of that disobedience is death. Like we are rebels and the consequences of that rebellion in our lives, the rebellion against God, it's death and that price has to be paid. But what we see is that in mercy, God is the one that has paid the price. And he is the one who has redeemed all who trust in him, which means that God has the right then, not only as our creator, but also as our redeemer to say that we are his. And the expectation of that reality is that then we as believers, that we live lives that reflect the gratitude for his gracious redemption. Where we have to get to, See, I think what, what we do so much in our lives is that we, we, we live in this, like, I've, I've got to try to make it. I've got to try to, like, pull myself up and, and, and give it the, the old college try. Like, I've got to do all of this stuff. I, I've got to make a way. I've got to find a purpose. I, I, I've got to make things right. I've got to do all of these things. And the reality of it is this, is that we need to stop trying ourselves and start living in the powerful reality that God has said, we are his. And so then the magnification of our lives then reflect the glory of God because our lives are lived out of gratitude for the saving redemption of God himself. And so this is where we're coming from. But note, there's a definition in this, in this verse that says, you are mine. So our definition then is not guilty blindness as Isaiah talks about in, in, in chapter 42 and verses 18 through 25. But instead we're defined by the grace of the one who says, you are mine. And then, then Isaiah goes on and says this in verse two. It says, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And when you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your savior, I give Egypt for your ransom, Cush and Seba in your stead. Since you're precious and honored in my sight and because I love you, I will give people in exchange for you, nations in exchange for your life. Do not be afraid for I am with you. I will bring your children from the east and gather you from the west. I will say to the north, give them up and to the south, do not hold them back. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, who I created for my glory, who I, whom I formed and made. See in verse two there, <coughs> water and fire are representative of God's wrath and judgment. Like God, he destroyed Noah's generation by water. It'll be fire that destroys the world at the end of the age. But our being chosen and our being redeemed signifies that we are his. And what that means is that what he's done is that he has linked the fullest display of his glory to our final salvation. See, scripture tells us that fire and water are not only a picture of total destruction under God's wrath, but it's also purification from sin. See, he says there, God's people will pass through the waters, but the rivers will not drown them. God's people will pass through the fire. So it says to us that yes, the waters will come, the fires will be there, but the rivers will not drown them and the flames will not consume them. What a powerful freeing reality for us. Like this should free all of God's people from fear in every generation. Twice in these verses, God says, do not fear because he's working out his plan 
so that all of us who are called by his name may display his glory. See, Galatians says that we're no longer then a slave to fear because we're a child of God. Listen, I get it. Like people don't know what's coming next. There's, un, there, there's an unknown commodity that exists in our world. Like we don't know what tomorrow's gonna bring or the next day. You, you, if you turn on the news, like you might as well, it, like the news now should just be called fear factor all the time because it just speaks so much to, to where like we should like cower away, that we should build little shelters and, and, and supply ourselves enough water and just sit there and like just wait. But what God is speaking over our house this morning and what God is wanting to say to you and to me is that you, we don't need to be slaves to fear because we're the children of God. He's spoken over our lives that we are his. God is calling all of us to not be afraid. He says, fear not because God is with you. Fear not because God is your God. Fear not because God is the one who is strengthening you. Fear not because God is helping you. Fear not because God is supporting you and he is the one who is holding you up by his victorious right hand. This is the reality of our lives, church. And this is why in the midst of all that we face out in the world, that the church must not remain silent, but that we must charge into the darkness with the message of Jesus, because we don't have to be afraid. We don't have to be afraid. You're like, well, Tim, where did, like, you don't really know me. Like, I'm really kind of a shy person. I don't really have a lot of confidence. Like, that's not really like how I live my life. Like, I can't really like talk to people like that. I, I, I do kind of live in fear. I'm like chicken little, like the sky is falling all the time in my life. So, I, so how do you do this? Here's the thing. Like, you, like this, is, this is not calling us to some sort of, let's just all grab our water pistols and charge the gates of hell with reckless abandon and, 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 and just complete chaos. Like it's not saying that you should just toughen up. You know, it, it's not like you know, they, they once had these old shirts that said like no fear and, and all the videos were people doing like some sort of crazy stuff on like ski slopes and, and on bicycles and, and different things like that. No, see, here's the reality. Like the, the ground for fearlessness it's not how we choose not to be afraid. It's not us you know, taking measures ourselves. The great ground of fearlessness exists in one person, that's God himself. Like you and I have a God who is infinitely more powerful than anything that we face in this world. He is infinitely more powerful than the nations of this world. He is infinitely more powerful than the immorality that exists all around us. He is infinitely more powerful than the finances that exist within our bank accounts. He is infinitely more powerful than today, tomorrow, the next day, to the end of time. He is infinitely more powerful because he is God. He is God. Like, do you believe that, church? Do you believe that? Then do not be afraid because he is God. He is God. In verses five through seven in Isaiah 43, what that just displays for us is this sovereign decree of almighty God to gather all who are called by his name under the call of the gospel who were created by his glory. Here's the truth of what verses five and seven says. It says that no trial, no trial that we undergo will destroy us as the children of God, but it only purifies us for the sake of his glory. Look at verse eight. He just says, lead out those who have eyes but are blind, who have ears but are deaf. All the nations gather together, all the peoples assemble. Which, which of their gods foretold this and proclaimed to us the former things? Let them bring in their witnesses to prove they were right so they may hear and say it is true. 
you are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I've chosen, so that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me no God was formed, nor will there be one after me. I, even I, am the Lord, and apart from me there is no savior. I have revealed and saved and proclaimed. I, and not some foreign God among you. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, that I am God. Yes, and from the ancient days, I am he. No one can deliver out of my hand. When I act, who can reverse it? This is what the Lord says, your redeemer, the holy one of Israel. For your sake, I will send to Babylon and bring down as fugitives all the Babylonians in the ships in which they took pride. I am the Lord, your holy one, Israel's creator, your king. Twice within these verses, in verses 10 and 12, God says, you are my witnesses. You say, well, what are, what are they witnesses to, Tim? They're witnesses, just, just as, as, as in Acts 1.8, the apostles and the disciples were witnesses to the same reality, witnesses to the exclusive reality that God alone is God. God emphasizes over and over in these verses that he alone is God. 19 words in the Hebrew text of these verses are, are in first person singular form. I, me, my. You see, Israel's exclusive loyalty to the Lord and the witness to the nations defines their identity and it defines our identity. See, see we are not a people of God plus something else. We, we are not about exclusive loyalty to Cross Life Church. We're not about exclusive loyalty to any man or person that exists in human form on the earth. We are not about exclusive loyalty to some sort of cause or purpose. We are about exclusive loyalty to the God and God alone. And we will be a witness to the nations of that reality. And that defines who we are as the people of God. And so in verse 12, when God says that he alone revealed, that he alone saved, that he alone proclaimed, what God is essentially saying there is that he predicted what he would do and then he acted powerfully in history to make it happen and then spread the news about his accomplishments. You know, see, man may make decrees, but God is the one who decides history, church. God is the one who sets forth the course of time. God is the one who sets forth the days. God is the one who has ordained your steps and my steps all to the glory of his name. The message of God's solitary existence must be spread across the earth to every nation in every language. You and I, we are his witnesses. Man, what an incredible privilege that God has entrusted to us as his people in every generation, that God is the only savior as he made plain in the death and resurrection of his son, Jesus. He declares himself to be sovereign over all the events of human history. See, our lives had to be defined by a fearlessness that is grounded in God and an exclusiveness that he alone is God. And that brings us to verses 16 through 21, which are the interpretive key to the entire chapter. Because what it does for us is that it points us toward the reality of experiencing the glory of God in the new, in this new, in this newness of life, in this new way, in this new day, and in the manner in which we were created. The first thing is this, is how do we experience that glory of God in the new? Is we have to forget the past. We have to forget the past. Look at verses 16 through 18. This is what the Lord says. He who made a way through the sea, a path through the mighty waters, who drew out chariots and horses, the army and reinforcements together, and they, laid, and they lay there never to rise again, extinguished, snuffed out like a wick. 
See, Isaiah's language here, it evokes the exodus through the Red Sea for the people of God. But, but no, there, there's a present tense in these verbs. I, I'm reading out of the, the NIV, but the, the ESV puts this so much better because it says, he who makes a way through the Red Sea, who brings out the chariots and horses, and they lie down there never to rise again. There's a present tense in the verbs that are used here. And what they imply is that the great exodus that took place all those years ago was representative not of what God did, but rather what God does. And it is therefore repeatable. See, understand this, like we have to move out of God did or God is going to do and live in the reality that God is doing right now. It's not that he has worked. It's not that he may be or hopefully will work, but God is working right now in this moment, in this season of your life. You may be saying, where is God? I don't see where he is. I don't know what he's doing. I'm telling you, God said in the beginning, do not be afraid because I will be with you. And so if God is with you, he's present. And in his presence, he's powerfully working in your life and in my life. And so we have to move, move beyond what took place in the past and live in the current reality that God is doing something. And it states here for us that God clearly has absolutely defeated his enemies forever. Which then Isaiah comes in in verse 18 and says this, forget the former things. Do not dwell on the past. Now, now you can look at this a couple different ways. And in studying this verse, scholars kind of point to, to a couple different things. There are a lot that will point and say that what verse 18 is saying is that the message that Isaiah is bringing forth here is not just for the people of God, but there, there is a, a prophetic tone to it that is pointing towards not just the, the Jewish nation, but Gentiles and the message of the gospel that would come to you and to me and to the church that exists today. But what it also is speaking to here is we need to understand that the Jews at this time were living in exile. The Jews ended up in exile time and time again for the very simple reason that they, forsake, they forsook God as being God alone. Look at the trajectory of the history of the Jewish people and you will see that, that they, they had great celebration, great triumph in the name of God. And then they would turn to idols and in turning to idols and taking their eyes off God, who is God alone, then they would find themselves in captivity. And they're finding themselves in this captivity right now and thinking, okay, well, how are we going to get out of this? And so the original Exodus that he mentions in verses 16 and 17, what, what he's saying there is that that did not exhaust God's power but rather it provided a pattern of a new exodus and a new deliverance that would be, would be to come. The Jewish exiles shouldn't live in the past, but they should look forward to God to bring them home through another exodus. So they're in the midst of, of, of sin. They're in the midst of failure in this moment. But understand this, God has said over and over and over again that he is going to deliver his people. He's going to deliver his people. And thus, when God forgives and restores, we should in turn forget the failures of the past. Like why, church, should we remember that which God has forgotten? He says in verse 25 of chapter 43, he says, I, even I am he who blots out your transgressions. Here's why he does it. For his own sake and remembers your sins no more. 
See, the people of Israel this time, they were forgiven, not because of the sacrifices that they brought, because there was no altar in Babylon, but they were forgiven because of the grace and mercy of God. And for you, in the midst of 2018, we have to forget the past failures of our lives. Like God has conquered all. God has defeated the enemies in our lives. God has defeated sin once and for all. And he has, he has brought forgiveness and redemption and restoration and rescue into our lives. And so we should move forward in that. And the reason that we should do that, the reason that we should forget the past, it says there, is that he blots out our transgressions and he does it for his glory. And so to continuously lean back and say, look at all of the failures that I have in my life is to rob God of his glory, uh, the glorious power of his redemption. And so we should forget the past. Secondly, what we should do then is see the future. See the future. Look at verse 19. It says, see or look or behold, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs up. Do you not perceive it? I am making a way in the wilderness and streams in the wasteland. See church, where there is no clear path forward, God creates one. We must see it and behold what he is doing. I, I fully believe this. Like we, we are an information age. Like we have more information than, than we could possibly need. Like you can Google anything. Like if you got a question, Google it and it will give you the answer somehow, shape, form, or fashion. And so like we, like we don't just know two plus two. We know dumb stuff now that has no bearing on life at all, but we know it. Like it's just total information overload in our lives. And I think as a church, what we do is, for many of us, and if you're here this morning and you've grown up in church, like then you've been in vacation Bible schools, you've been a part of summer camps, you've been a part of all of these different things and all these different realities. And so you have like Jesus information overload in your life. You're like, yes, I've heard it all. I've seen it all. I've lived it all. I know it all. And, and what I'm contending for us is that if we move forward in 2018, is we have to move past just simply information and we need to embrace revelation of Jesus Christ because it is only through a revelation of Jesus Christ that true transformation will occur in you and in me as the people of God. A revelation of him. See, here's what we do. Like we get so concerned about the possibility of short-term gains in our lives. Like, like we, we live in that. It's like, what, how, how is this gonna be a short-term gain for me? And like, we, we only see out so far and it's like, okay. And we make choices about it. We make decisions about that. And we're so concerned about the short-term, short-term gains in our lives that we neglect the certainty of the long-term promise of God. And we've gotta to begin to put aside just simply looking at short-term gains and grab hold of the long-term promises because the long-term promise of God is certain and is sure more so than anything else in our lives. Finally, we need to follow the way. Follow the way. Look at verse 19 again. It says, see, I'm doing a new thing. Now it springs up. Do you not perceive it? I'm making a way in the wilderness and streams in the wasteland. The wild animals honor me and the jackals and the owls because I provide water in the wilderness and streams in the wasteland to give drink to my people, my chosen, the people I formed for myself that they may proclaim my praise. See, where there's no natural relief or refreshment, God provides it. The faithfulness of God, the faithfulness of God and the certainty of his final victory, that is a thing that motivates, that drives us, that 
pushes us as his people toward prayer and practical obedience in the right now. Like what these verses are pointing towards is a grander, more ultimate exodus that awaits God's people. Paul writes about it in Romans 8, verses 18 through 21. He says, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. See, God's ultimate goal is that his people might declare his praise, might declare his praise in the celebration of the new year and also in the sorrow of the new year that we might declare his praise. Paul writes about this this newness in 2 Corinthians 5, Verses 11 through 21, he just says in verse 11, since then, we know what it is to fear the Lord. We try to persuade others. What we are is plain to God, and I hope it's also plain to your conscience. We're not trying to commend ourselves to you again, but are giving you an opportunity to take pride in us so that you can answer those who take pride in what is seen rather than what is in the heart. If we are out of our mind, as some say, it is for God. If we're in our right mind, it's for you. For Christ's love compels us because we're convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone. The new is here. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ. And here it says, not counting people's sins against them. Forget the past. God is not looking at your sins and counting them against you. God does not have a scoreboard that says that you have this many points and you gotta make it up to get ahead in the game. No, the scoreboard in God's economy says victory in full, final, for all time. And your name as a child of him is written on that victory scoreboard as well. Forget the past. He's not counting your sins against you. And he's committed to us the message of reconciliation. We need to look out and see into the future as witnesses that we're being committed with a message of reconciliation. It says, we are therefore Christ ambassadors. Follow the way as Christ ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Church, God chose us because he loved us and we are precious in his sight. This is the message of not just this year, but every year of every day, of every moment for each and every person that sits in this place today. And we must realize that what God does, all the mighty work of God, all the powerful work of majesty, all of that work on our behalf, he does it for his own sake. 
He does it for the sake of his name, for his own glory. We were created for the glory of God and we have been redeemed to the praise of his glory. So for 2018, will you resolve not to lose more weight, not to be better with your finances, not to go on more trips, not, not to, not to kind of do more things or, or, or make better decisions or get a new job. Will you just simply resolve this? Will you resolve for a life that simply seeks to do one thing and that is to bring honor and glory to the name of God Almighty? Will you seek to resolve to live your lives for him? Will you seek to say, I will not be afraid because God is God alone. He is God, I believe it. And so because I believe it and I've received it and it has been revealed to me in the person of Jesus Christ, I will not be afraid for the glory of the name of God for all time. Church, I just, I just believe just believe in what God has for your life, for our life. December 31st, 2017, the clock will strike midnight and we will be in 2018. And you say, what'll be different about 2018? I'm sure there'll be a lot different. Some of you on January 2nd, you may move into a new job. Some of you in 2018 may move into retirement. Some of you, you may move into a new life together, a marriage with somebody that you're engaged to currently. Maybe a new child, maybe a new city to live in, a new house to move into. There may be changes, there may be loss, but here's the beauty of it all. So when the clock strikes midnight and January 1st, 2018 comes upon us, God will still be God alone. God will still be on the throne. God will still be reigning victoriously for all time. And because of that, we do not have to be afraid. We do not have to be afraid and we as the people of God can live for the glory of his name. Would you pray with me? With heads bowed and eyes closed. I believe there's two sets of people in the room this morning. That there are those that the idea of a relationship with Christ and that God speaking out over your life that you are his is something completely new. And I just wanna to say to you, if that's you here in this place, that there is no better way to close out 2017 and move into 2018 than with just simply surrendering your life over to Jesus. To believe and confess that he is Lord and to surrender your life over to him. I believe there's others in here that simply what you need to do in 2018 is just Surrender your fear, surrender the uncertainty, surrender the chaos and cling hold to the reality that God is God alone. And just simply say, I will not be afraid because God is God alone.
Thanks for listening. You can find more sermons and other information at crosslifechurch.com.